This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Everybody wanted to be the cool place, at least in Jeff Bezos' eyes, and he has finally made his decision, Taylor, although it's a little bit of a letdown on a number of, uh, in a number of ways, I should say, because this started to leak out over the last couple of weeks, but you and I happen to be in today, Isn't both that of the cool? places. We're, we're both so in both smart. places. So it's like we knew. Smart. Uh, so we're going to talk to two people who aren't in either of these places, but know a lot more about it uh, and this process than we do. Alistair Barr is technology reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from our San Francisco bureau. And Eric Gordon, longtime friend of the show. He's a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, joining us from Ann Arbor. Eric, I want to start with you because this was a long saga, and it's sort of ending with a, okay, so it's going to be two places. It's going to be two places where they already had people. Feels like a little bit of a letdown, or am I just not appreciating the drama here? No, I'm with you. This is like the NBA playoffs. At some point, unless it's your team, you just want it to be done, and then you know, it's usually not your team, so, you know, little sour grapes and you get on with it. Um, but it is still a big deal, even though, you know, uh, as you said, you know, the cat was sort of out of the bag. It's still a big deal for the places that got it. And why wh- Why these two places? What's your sense of why these, these guys, these places essentially or ultimately won the Derby? Yeah, I think it's all about uh, the existing talent in the area plus the ability to attract and absorb more talent. What it's not about is it's not about just the incentives, and it's certainly not about low cost of living. Uh, A lot of the cities that did not win pitched, you know, real low cost of living, um, but that doesn't matter. What you need is to be able to attract talent. I mean, if, if low cost of living set up where the tech center was, the country's tech center would be in Op, Alabama, which is a very nice city in Alabama, very low cost, not a tech center. So it's it's about the existing talent and the ability to attract talent, and then secondarily an airport and a few other things. Right. Alistair, I want to bring you in. It's so interesting. My background is in municipal bond reporting, and so much of our focus here was on cities and states and the tax incentives that they offered. Now, uh, we did just hear from the professor that it's not only about the tax breaks. A lot of else goes into it. But what did you make of the tax breaks? How much are these cities ponying up to lure Amazon over? I think um, the professor is right in the sense that um, if Amazon really wanted the most amount of money or tax savings, it probably would have gone with Newark. Um, and I think New, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, um, you know, was quite open that that package that they were offering was about seven billion dollars. And um, if you look at the three new locations that Amazon has actually decided on, it looks like New York City is is the one that's offering the most, and it is not more than three billion dollars um, from what we've been looking at so far um, and then second um, is, is Virginia uh, in the, there's, a, there's an actual breakdown that Amazon provides which is uh, you know a certain amount of dollars 
per per job that they're gonna that they're promising to create over the next 10 years or so. And so New York looked like the highest. DC was kind of the middle, and then and then Nashville, um, which is a smaller location, is 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 on the bottom as far as having to pay. Um, and if you if you think about that. It, it kind of makes sense because you know before all the decisions um, came out, uh, a, a lot of the betting was on the DC area, um, right. in in part because um, Jeff Bezos bought a nice house there. He owns the Washington Post. Amazon's most existential threat is um, not not competition; it's antitrust um, risks and uh, Donald Trump ranting about the company. So um, being in DC is is very very important for Amazon going forward. Eric, I want to talk to you about if there are any negatives to this. It might be the sort of pressure this puts on a city, their infrastructure. I'm thinking about the 7 train here, the queue that goes out to Long Island City. The pressure puts on the uh, on real estate as well as you bring in a flood of people. Are these cities ready to handle the influx of talent and the pressure that it puts on a city's infrastructure? Oh, Tara, those are great questions. It remains to be seen. I think New York is, you know, Long Island City, which, you know, a lot of people uh, outside of New York never heard of, is actually already a booming place. Uh, it's already getting a lot of growth. Uh, that's not a subway line I would like to be on, but uh, there are hardly any subway lines I like to be on, actually, Ditto. these days. Um, so, yeah. Uh, And there have been some criticisms, including some very vocal criticisms by New York politicians, both state politicians and city politicians, about driving up housing prices, yeah, congestion, and even about sort of the political philosophical question of subsidizing a big successful company uh, to come give jobs. So, uh, you know, these these things are not without their potential problems. Uh, Just look at Seattle. Amazon's home. Look at the problems there with housing, um, problems uh, of an infrastructure that we're, we're tightening up such that it probably drove Amazon to make this move in the first place. And yeah. that's probably why we've split this one, or they've split this one into two. You know, right. if you put it all in Long Island City, if you put it all into Crystal City, uh, you know, maybe too much pressure all at once. Absolutely. Very, very good points. Great discussion. Eric Gordon, professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, joining us on the phone from Ann Arbor. Alistair Barr, technology reporter at Bloomberg, joining us from our San Francisco bureau. Uh, Thank you both for your insights. And Taylor, I do think back to Eric's point right there uh, at the end. There's a great Bloomberg Business Week story just a couple weeks ago or a month or so ago, maybe, that Dina Bass wrote about the effect on that specific neighborhood uh, in Seattle. And uh, And Jason, I will tell you there are very mixed studies about whether these tax incentives really work from the state and the local government's perspective. So yeah, that's your your, uh, wheelhouse, little muni land there. I like it. Continued, we will say. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. The name of this song is Protection, because you know what? We're taking a look at CDS, which is very interesting. It's taking a look at the cost of protecting against a default of bonds. And we're taking a look at GE, uh, because we heard a lot of news out of GE yesterday. The company did an interview with CNBC, and it talked about missing some of their sales targets. GE is just sort of been struggling with their asset sales, getting a viable plan underway. They have a new CEO, Larry Culp, who's trying to sort of lead this charge. So I want to bring in Molly Smith, your Bloomberg News reporter here. 
I want to get to the credit perspective, but first let's just talk about what you're noticing in the market and the immediate reaction where spreads on a five-year CDS, which is the cost of protecting against a default, are rising. Is this a leading or a lagging indicator? It's definitely a leading one. And when we're talking about CDS, uh, credit default swaps, uh, for those of you who are just joining us, that uh, we're looking at, like Taylor said, the cost to insure GE debt against default for five years. That's not necessarily meaning that people who are buying this insurance are convinced that GE is going to default. Uh, But there is a perceived greater chance that they will miss a payment and that the credit in general is struggling, which we have seen with uh, the price of the bonds as well. And so how is this spreading, Molly, or is it? And where should we be looking for the next leg of this? And I dare dare to use the C word, contagion. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, the C word has definitely come up in that sense, Jason. And uh, it's uh, it's something that we're all looking at. And uh, Scott Minard of uh, Guggenheim Security certainly pointed that out. Earlier today, uh, he had posted on Twitter uh, that GE could just be the start of what could be a broader collapse in the investment-grade universe. Uh, So a topic that I've definitely been looking into, uh, not just in the sense of fallen angels, which is when investment-grade securities fall to high yield, but also just uh, where that starts in GE's case, falling from single A into triple B. And uh, that's been a concern also at Barclays, at Goldman Sachs, even some buy-side investors who I've talked to at Aviva Investors, that uh, that could even be a greater phenomenon to look at than just the downgrade risk into high yield. And Jason, it was really interesting. Molly and I were talking last week about Ford. Before even all of this GE stuff came up, we were taking a look at Ford and their investment grade, and they've already started to trade like junk. So that is a little bit of a risk. But do Ford and GE a market make, or are we just sort of putting these two in that bucket and the rest of the market is okay? I mean, we need to see more than Ford and GE to be selling off to be this concerned. I think what Molly's trying to ask, Taylor, is, is this a real thing or is this just a bunch of CDS nerds getting excited (laughs) about something that's happening in the credit markets? No, it's not just a bunch of nerds. And um, I may be one of said nerds, but uh, I I think what's, you know, interesting with Ford and GE in particular uh, is that so much of the debt that they have is tied to their financing arms. And in GE's case in particular, obviously, uh, they've been trying to unwind a lot of GE capital. And when you look at their debt maturities, you know, it still looks a lot like a financial company, even though GE doesn't really operate like one anymore. So that's, really that's something that we're starting to look into now of, you know, is GE like other financial companies? How great is the refinancing risk for them? You know, how dependent are they on access to the capital markets and rolling over maturities? We had a really interesting chart out earlier that was taking a look at the size of the investment grade market. Triple Bs, I believe, now make up about half of all investment grade. That's particularly worrisome if any cracks start to show and you start to see downgrades because that's half the market. Right. And that's also not to say that half the market is going into high yield. And when we talk about the triple B bucket, we're talking about securities that are rated triple B plus, triple B and triple B minus. So could be anywhere from one to three downgrades away from high yield. But the interesting point of why I wanted to bring up 
uh, that may, that the uh, another risk of falling from A to triple B is that when that kind of downgrade happens, you're still staying within investment grade. So yes, there's for selling, you know, of if you you know breach a certain amount of securities in that lower rated bucket, but the selling is still contained to investment grade universe. But when we're looking at true fallen angels, when you go into high yield, not only is there the forced selling, but there's also this forced buying component when you have the high yield guys that now have to start looking as well. Very interesting. That's Molly Smith of Bloomberg News. Jason, I know that we're going to be having her back as we start to see if there's any more potential cracks showing up in the credit markets. Absolutely. And Molly really is one of our go-to reporters. She knows more about this market. You do as well. And I, I call you nerds because I care and because I'm jealous of how smart you are. It's just a fact. So we keep All right, waiting for that indeed. Uh, I'm Jason Kelly down at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event here in Washington, D.C. And joining me is Edie Weiner, fellow New Yorker, but also down here in Washington. We were bemoaning the the travel (laughs) going on uh, today, but that's not what we're here to talk about. She's the president and chief executive officer of the Future Hunters. Uh, Again, joining me here uh, in D.C., and Taylor Riggs up in New York. Edie, great to be with you. It's great to be with you, Jason. So I feel like we're talking about this finally more and more in this age of technology that we can't lose sight of the human. Why are we all of a sudden seemingly realizing that again? You've, you've known it for a long time, but it feels like maybe the world is, uh, is coming to you here. Well, you know, there's a big difference between the human and humanity. Mm. And um, if we take a look at all of the technologies that are now emerging, there is the fear on the part of a lot of people that the human is being engineered differently. Whether we're talking about artificial intelligence replacing human work, or whether we're talking about synthetic biology being able to create create all these things, or robotics and sensors and genetic engineering, I mean, augmentation, implantation, regeneration. If we look out to the future, there's no question that humanity will survive. But what will humans look like is different. And for those people who are totally threatened by that, I would just have them look at the Special Olympics now, where you have people doing extraordinary things with artificial limbs that they don't hide. These are prosthetics that work beautifully, and they really look super cool. Um, and it's enabling people to do what they couldn't do before. There are things like exoskeletons that people are using in factories to be able to lift things that are much heavier than they could have lifted without this augmentation. So we can go back to the invention of eyeglasses uh, all the way through to where we will be in the future, and um, humanity will be here. Whether it looks exactly like humans looking exactly like each other, mm-hmm. I think all bets are off on that one. Right. Um, and will there be work here for humans in the future? Absolutely. There's no question about it. There are going to be whole new jobs and whole new careers created. Big data, um, for all those people who are freaked out about wanting to become coders that you have, well, coding itself will eventually be done by artificial intelligence. But to what use we put that and the creative applications, 
humanity will be deciding right. a lot of that. And if we think about um, the future of education, we believe it's actually going to be learning and not education. And that means lifelong exposure to a whole lot of things, which will mean millions of people having to be employed in understanding and communicating creative things about everything from what a particular star in the universe looks like mm. to an ancient village somewhere in the tropics. Edie, I, um, I love that you uh, talk about some of the fear factors because I feel like so many people are afraid of technology because they think it will will replace them instead of help them. And I like that you were talking about the Special Olympics and factory jobs where technology is able to help people instead of replace them. What sectors are you seeing that are being disrupted the most where you're seeing technology come in and people are able to maybe move on to better things because the technology is there to replace some of the lower wage jobs? I would be careful about using lower wage jobs because I don't think technology is discriminating on the mm. basis of income. What it is discriminating on is the basis of what can be downloaded into software. So I think that doctors and lawyers and engineers and financial executives can be just as subject to a lot of their work being taken over by artificial intelligence capacities um, as can anyone else. And in fact, some of the people that are going to do very, very well are those people who deliver personal services that cannot go onto software. So if your pipes break, you have to call the plumber. Right. And you know how difficult it is to get a good plumber. Yeah. And and they're in high demand now. And and if you if you if your lights go out, you need the electrician. Um, and there may be some point out another decade or two where there are smart systems that can actually fix some of that. But I would just um, have you recall the brilliance of Gene Roddenberry in creating Star Trek, where in every episode you had the rationality, and maybe you might consider it like the artificial intelligence version mm -hmm. in Mr. Spock. You had the human sort of leadership in Captain Kirk. But in every episode, it was Scotty that saved the day. Because right. <laughs> he could actually fix something. You needed the plumber and the yeah. electrician. Yeah. And, and although he was advanced in his knowledge of the tools that he had, he still represents that person that you need that you can't download onto something. Well, I want to take you back to something you said to, to help us synthesize this, which is education becomes learning. So how... How do we do that? How do we learn We're already the doing right that. skills? We are. We're already doing You know, um, well, let me take you to the far end of this and then come back in. The far end is that there's something that's called flow, where we know that it takes the brain 20,000 to 30,000 hours to do something and learn it so well that you can do it automatically. Through direct cranial stimulation technology, transcranial direct stimulation, we can produce flow in two to three hours. Wow. So it will take less and less time to learn more and more advanced things. And then how we will expose ourselves to learning. We're already doing that differently, and we have to be careful that we don't 
pour new wine into old bottles. So I get asked all the time, well, isn't it great now that we can take the most brilliant biology teacher in the world and have them come online and teach millions of people instead of just a few hundred? And my answer to that is why would you want to do that when what we are on the precipice of being capable of doing is through virtual reality gaming technology, immersion, to become a white blood corpuscle swim through the bloodstream and fight off all kinds of invading germs and in 10 minutes having fun learn more about immunology than any teacher could teach you in 20 hours. Why would we want to learn through a teacher or a textbook anthropology when we can live in ancient civilizations? We can experience them. But what we will need are guides, which are very different from teachers. We can be directly involved in the knowledge, but we'll need wisdom and, and knowledge to guide us through what we're doing. So if I lived in two different villages, one for two days and another for two days, then my guide, who is in all likely a person who is a nerd in that particular area, would say, why do you suppose the pottery is different from this and that? And it's because this one's tropical and that one's desert. So that's different from the curriculum and the teachers and the education system we have today. So, so interesting. Edie Wiener, I could talk to you all afternoon. President and Chief Executive Officer of the Future Hunters uh, here at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event in D.C. So we are here at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event uh, here in Washington. Taylor Riggs holding down the fort back in New York City. Joining me across the table here is Jessica rosen Commissioner Jessica rosen Federal Communications Commissioner, uh, Lone Democrat. That's true. There you are on the commission, uh, fighting the good fight, uh, sort of returning. Yeah, this is your sort of second go around uh, on the FCC. You're participating in a panel here. Uh, the title is Women in Technology and Government. Got to be an interesting time for these conversations, especially coming off of the midterms and thinking about kind of this wave, uh, it feels like, uh, of women uh, coming into government. You've been doing this for some time. How does it feel to you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, It feels exciting to me. Listen, I work in science, technology, engineering, and math, and those are fields where the number of women is just too few. And yet those are the fields that are growing three times as fast as the rest of all other occupations. So we're going to have to figure out ways to make sure there are more women participating in our digital future not just as consumers of content, but as creators. Right. So I know you obviously are a federal government official, but obviously the local government around here, we can look across the river from where uh, we're sitting. Amazon is going to be, you know, putting one of its sort of HQ half to, I don't know what what, what, uh, exactly we're calling it since they're splitting it up. But, I mean, how much does that help sort of those types of initiatives? Because are those the types of jobs? Are those the sorts of things that will ultimately lift this? Well, I think we make a mistake when we think about technology as a sector. Yeah. It is now an input into everything we do from code to wireless connectivity. This is a part of every sector of the economy. So let's stop thinking about it like its own fiefdom or silo with some set of skills and individuals who work in it. We all work in technology. That's the future. And so what's the most important policy, your policymaker ultimately, regular, how 
what what can you put into place that can ensure that that keeps going, especially candidly at a time where there's a lot of disagreement about how to get from here to there, from here to anywhere? Well, I think the future belongs to the connected, and we have got to figure out how to get broadband and wireless connections that are big and robust to everyone in every corner of this country. And that's a big infrastructure development, but it is the most important one that our country faces. Is there any sense of consensus among the commissioners on how to do that at this point? Well, I do think there's consensus that this is important stuff and that we need to make it a priority. And that's good. I think the consensus isn't always there when it comes to the terms of how we do that Mm -hmm. and what that entails. But I absolutely believe that there is consensus that this infrastructure really matters. Jessica, can you talk to me more about that? 5G has been a huge issue when you talk about broadband, especially out in rural areas. I mean, even during the elections, we kept hearing that that was something that, you know, Democrats and Republicans could really agree on is getting the 5G rollout. How are you making sure that that is a priority and that you're doing that? Well, first of all, let's talk about what 5G is all about. The fourth generation of wireless brought a lot of computer processing power to our pockets and our purses by giving us all smartphones. And that's extraordinary. But the next generation, 5G, is about connecting the whole world around us and drawing on those efficiencies to really change how we interact with scarce resources, how we conduct ourselves, and how we build our economy. And what we want to do is make sure that deployment doesn't just happen in the most urban areas, but also in rural areas. And I think there are two essential components to that. The first is spectrum. You might not see it, but the airwaves all around us are really important. And the FCC helps zone those airwaves to make sure that they can be used for new wireless services from your phone to the Internet of Things. And in addition, wireless services actually at some points require wires. So we're going to have to figure out how to have cell towers and small cells, which are like miniaturized versions of cell towers, in many more places all across this country. So if we can figure out the skies and we can figure out the connectivity on the ground, we can get 5G everywhere. And how much is that going to rely on private sector investment, the right type of private sector uh, investment versus the government? And what does the government need to be doing to ensure that it happens the right way, at the right speed? or at the right pace, I should say, uh, and in the right places. So the private sector will lead the way with all of this deployment, but the government can make choices that help expedite it. First, we can hold a lot of spectrum auctions and clear some of our skies so that we can get airwaves to market that can be used for wireless service. And second, we can all figure out at the local, state, and federal level how to streamline some of our siting procedures to make sure all those facilities are deployed on the ground in an expeditious way. I want to talk about one of the panels that you were on. You were previewing, uh, you're going to be speaking about uh, women in technology and government. Uh, As we think about women in government, do you feel like you're leading the way or are you sort of playing catch up here? Because that's certainly in the private sector and here, you know, at Bloomberg's, we look at a lot of different companies. it's it's been a struggle you know we we talk about it but actually getting there is is a different story oh you're right i mean i've been in so many rooms and wall street and on sand hill road and talking about engineering and wireless technology and i'm the only woman there and right now i'm the only woman on the fcc so i am familiar with this in all sorts of ways 
So what I try to do is look for opportunities to amplify the really cool women I know who are working on technology policy all across this country. I started the first FCC podcast to talk to women called Broadband Conversations. And I make sure that I get out of Washington and speak as often as I can on technical panels so that people don't think it's all that hot or unusual to see someone female talking about what's happening in our airwaves and what's happening with technology policy. So you're in the trenches yes. every day, yes. uh, you know, here in Washington and beyond, uh, as you say. Here we are, as we say, a couple weeks past the midterms. What's the mood like? Has it changed? Are you more optimistic, neutral, pessimistic? Where are you? Well, I think things will change. There'll be a lot more oversight in Washington, and that includes oversight of agencies like my own, the Federal Communications Commission. And I think that's a good thing. That's the role of Congress, and so I welcome it. Look forward to it. What's the thing that you think you can most make an impact on in 2019, just looking ahead? Well, one thing that I'm really struck by is that today students need the Internet to do their homework. And according to the Senate Joint Economic Committee, there are 12 million kids who fall into a homework gap because they don't have the Internet at home. And if you ask me, that's the cruelest part of the digital divide, and it's one that I hope we can fix in the coming year. Uh, Thank you so much, Commissioner, on the FCC. Joining us here at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. That is our drive to the close. That never gets old for me. I can see you dancing over there, Jason, and Charlie Just Pellet. We're all on video out. cam here, all jamming dancing Jamming out together. in Washington. Uh, I do want to um, be serious for a moment, though, because equities were positive and we've turned negative a little bit. And that's something to note, uh, particularly after yesterday's uh fairly big sell-off when the tech sector was off 3-4%. Uh, so we have turned negative on all of the major averages. So as we think about the closing bell about 40 minutes away, I want to bring in Scott Kuby. He's the chief investment officer over at Carson Group. Um, Scott, you know, I have to ask this. Is this a buying opportunity? Stocks now on a relative valuation might look pretty attractive after the sell-off we've had over the last few days. Do you have Do you have the courage to jump in here? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think we saw a, a number of people, and I certainly we're seeing some greater buying opportunities and improved valuations. When you get down to about this level, which isn't terribly far from the lows that we saw uh, back in late October, as U.S. stocks start to trade on a forward basis about 15, maybe 16 times earnings, and that makes stocks in the U.S. look as attractive as they have on an earnings basis in a, really in a long time. And that's really because, one, the prices of gone down, but also we've had another phenomenal earnings quarter, and expectations remain pretty strong moving forward. So yeah, I, I see some really good opportunities in the U.S. market right now. And as you drill down into some sectors, I mean, I, Scott, I, I do wonder, as we came out of this earnings season where it felt like investors were 
to use a technical term, pickier, maybe a little more demanding, uh, especially on, on forecasts. How do you go down a level and, and figure out where some of those opportunities may be sector-wise? Yeah, yeah I think you're, you know, there's been a lot of overreactions. I think you've seen that. You know, Home Depot today is an example of a stock that got shot down pretty hard yeah. um, on, on its concerns. And we've seen that with Caterpillar, uh, Amazon, uh, Google to some degree as well. And I, I think there's – I try to group it into two different groups. One of them is that we've felt for a while, and when you look at it from a price-to-sales basis, that the big-time growth companies that are really, really popular are still pretty pricey. And they're, they're not priced to perfection, but at least to near perfection. There are a lot of value companies that are starting to compete better. They have good businesses, and they're profiting from the strong overall economic growth we've seen. That's where we're seeing more attractive opportunities, and that's where I think you get some buying opportunities, even on a little weakness. Even without the weakness, you know, even when they have really good numbers, we're not seeing much pop out of that. It's more you get punished or we ignore you, and that's, so that makes it a tougher environment for stocks. But for stock picking, I think it makes a great opportunity. We kind of lean a bit more towards the value side or growth stocks that have some valuation uh, pressure or some valuation uh, built into them where you, you're getting them not at the most expensive price or really expensive prices because a lot of those growth companies are still really, really expensive out there. Well, Scott, you must have been listening to our radio program yesterday because we were speaking with the gentleman from Russell Investments and we were talking about how growth continues to outperform value and, and, it, and maybe it does look expensive now uh, because you're pricing in a lot of future growth in, in the future. So I like that you're, you're lo- taking a look at value instead and, and seeing how that plays out. Uh, as you dive deeper, I know that in your notes, you're taking a look at companies like Caterpillar and Lockheed Martin. Walk me through your thesis on Lockheed Martin. It was a stock that you just added last month. How do you feel about it? Yeah, you know, I I think one of the spaces we see is that the world really political risk is starting to increase. And when you look at their overall situation, the the defense industry is competitive in the sense that there are two or three really big companies that are out there. But it's not really competitive in the sense that there's no one else who can produce something big and major for the defense department outside of those. What we've seen is that Lockheed Martin has continued to win and has some really successful franchise contracts that are going to do well and are likely to continue to do well. And when it comes up where somebody else wants to underbid them, like Boeing has for certain uh, certain contracts, they've stepped aside in order to maintain shareholder margins, which is really good if you're an owner of the company. It may not be good for the sales department, but it's great for the owners. And that's something that we really appreciate is the, cast, the capital discipline that they have. And I think that's one of the things that makes them attractive. In addition, you know, it's, it's not that expensive, and we see some good growth opportunities simply as defense budgets start to recover under a Republican administration. Scott Kuby is chief investment officer for the Carson Group, overseeing about $7.2 billion. Carson is based in Omaha, Nebraska, joining us on the phone, Taylor Riggs and myself. So, Taylor, it is interesting, this market we're now finding ourselves in where people are really having to go that level down. Fundamentals are uh, coming back into play. I like it. Well, and that's that's me, right? We're that's like all you. about fundamental analysis all over you. here. It's your sort of market. Which is your great. sort of market. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.